if you are going to go to heaven, you need the righteousness of God. And it's a different kind of righteousness than anything that you can obtain or earn through your own human efforts. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are studying the book of Romans, and we opened chapter 3 last week and looked at the depravity of man. As we continue in verses 19 to 21 today, we begin a look at the righteousness of God. By the end of this study, we'll see that God is so righteous and so holy, and man is so depraved, that there really is no comparison. The two are literally like night and day. So let's begin our message entitled, The Righteousness of God. We're coming to a very important section here, the second half of Romans 3. And if you can understand the last few paragraphs in this chapter, you will understand fully the depths of the gospel. And not only will these truths here help you to grow in grace, but they will help you to become more usable in the hand of God in communicating the gospel. I suppose there is no other passage in all of the New Testament that has helped me more in my communication of the gospel than what we're going to look at. Most Bible students would argue that the last half of Romans 3 is the heart and center of the book of Romans, and many believe it is the most important section in all of the Bible. I happen to believe that if you can understand a truth deeply, that you can communicate it very simply. So don't make the gospel more complicated than it is because it is not complicated. When you hear a preacher or a pastor preaching, you think, boy, is he intelligent. I can't understand him. Just remember, because the river is muddy doesn't mean that it's deep. Very often when there's mist in the pulpit, there's fog in the pew. And so my challenge as a pastor is to teach the whole counsel of Scripture. And it's a challenge because God has called me not just to teach little baby lambs who've been saved only a matter of days, but also Christians who have matured, and not all have, but many have, who have known Christ for decades and everything in between. And hopefully, you will have something today to hang your hat on and to take home and let God use to change your life. Now, I want to begin reading in verse 19, where we left off last time. And I'm going to read 19 through what we're going to discuss and examine for five weeks. The second half of Romans 3 is going to take us five weeks to get through. And before you can really get found, you have to get lost. And Paul understands that. So after his introduction, his preface in Romans 1, 1 to 17, beginning in 118 through 320, he's been describing man and all of his sinfulness. And he's been painting the universal need for salvation because of the universal sinfulness of man. So we're going to pick up in 119. It sounds like you have it. We're going to cover, as you can see in your bulletin, just verses 19 to 21. And we're going to discuss this morning the righteousness of God. Romans 3, beginning now in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, 
for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Now you can see I want to teach this morning on the righteousness of God. We've already seen Paul introduce that term to us and he uses it three times in our passage. I have them underlined in my Bible in verse 21. He speaks of the righteousness of God. In verse 22, a second time, the righteousness of God. And then in verse 26, he refers to his righteousness. Now, if you've been with us through this study of Romans, you know that Paul has been painting a very dark picture of man and sin. There's been no ray of hope, no flicker of light. There's no prospect of, rec of rescue until you come to those two little words this morning, but now. Verses 21 to 26, over and against the unrighteousness of some and the self-righteousness of others, paints a picture for us of the righteousness of God. And so he says, but now, think of those two words, circle them, underline them, highlight. They're critical to what we're going to spend five weeks in thinking on. You were spiritually dead, but now you are spiritually alive. You were guilty before God, but now you are a justified child of God. You were in the kingdom of darkness, but now you are in the kingdom of light. You were spiritually lost, now you are spiritually saved. You were spiritually dead, but now you have been born again. But now, Donald Gray Barnhouse of the 10th Presbyterian Church, a great preacher in the 1950s, went home to be with the Lord a long time ago, but his four-volume series on Romans continues to be used by Bible students all around the world. And he called verses 21 to 26 the most important paragraph in all of God's written word. If I were stranded on a desert island and I could have only one book of the Bible, I would want the book of Romans. And if I could have just one paragraph of the Bible, I would want the section that we're going to study. Alva McLean, a great seminary professor now in heaven, he said, if it were possible for me to snatch from Scripture any one section and release all the rest of the sands of time, I would choose this paragraph of Scripture. John Calvin, Martin Luther, Charles Cranfield called it the heart and center of the book of Romans. And I would have to agree, there's no 
paragraph anywhere, anywhere in all the Word of God that describes the gospel like this paragraph does. We're going to look at some very challenging terms in the days ahead. Terms that are pregnant with spiritual truth. And if you can get a hold of these terms, you will grow deep in the grace of God and God will use you as an instrument in a more profound way in which to communicate His gospel. Now let me set the context because I want you to see that there's a link between what the Apostle Paul has said and what he is about to say. Everything that Paul has said has been linked together in chains of thought. And if you remove or miss one link, you will not understand the flow of the letter. If you remember, turn back a page or so to Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. In Romans 1, 16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says, For in it... For in what, Paul? For in the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So that was the first time we saw this phrase, the righteousness of God. And again, it's critical to our understanding of this section of Scripture. It's critical not just to your personal relationship with God, but again to your ability to communicate the gospel. So what does Paul mean in Romans when he speaks of the righteousness of God? How is he using it? Is he using the righteousness of God to describe a divine attribute that God is righteous? It is often used that way in the Word of God. But is that how Paul is using it here? Or is Paul using the phrase, the righteousness of God, to describe a divine activity? That is, when God acts righteously, when God asks, acts justly and fair. Certainly, it is used that way many times in the Holy Scripture. Or is Paul referring to neither a divine attribute or a divine activity, but to a divine gift? That is, God bestowing upon the sinner a righteous standing. It's important that when we see this phrase, the righteousness of God, that we examine it contextually. And we're going to see before we're done with the latter half of Romans 3 that Paul uses the phrase, the righteousness of God, to describe a divine attribute, a divine activity, and a divine gift. For in Paul's theology, the righteousness of God is God's way of saving sinners, whereby his righteous character, he can declare you righteous without compromising his righteousness. Or you could say the righteousness of God is how God at the same time makes you righteous without compromising his righteousness. It's God's righteous way of declaring unrighteous people righteous in his sight. Let me say that again. The righteousness of God is God's righteous way of declaring unrighteous people righteous in his sight. Now, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And so Paul immediately, when he comes to chapter 3 and verse 20, begins to describe that righteousness, righteousness that we need. And so in verse 21, he will say, but now. Verses 19 and 20 are kind of a hinge verse here in our study of Romans. 
Remember, in the introduction, verses 1 through 17, he gives a greeting. He expresses his purpose for coming or wanting to come to the church at Rome. And then he gave us the theme of Romans. That I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You could paraphrase it. I'm not ashamed of the righteousness of God. Because the two phrases are used equivalently with Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Because in the gospel, you find a demonstration, a revelation of God's righteousness. And so, having said that, he then painted a picture of the need of man to receive that righteousness. And if you've been with us, we spent eight weeks on 118 through where we are today. And he's left us rather depressed and desperate. But now, he says, since I've established the truth that all men are guilty before God, but now I have a breath of good news to give you. Now, if you were with us in our very first sermon on the book of Romans, I gave you an outline of this great letter. We saw chapters 1 through 8 deals with God's righteousness revealed. It's a revelation of God's righteousness. When you come to chapters 9 through 11, we see God's dealing with the people of Israel, that he is faithful even when they are faithless, that God remains true to himself, and we see God's righteousness vindicated. Then when we come, we come to chapters 12 through 16, we will see God's righteousness applied. Or to say it differently, the first section is the doctrinal section, the second section is the national section, and the third section is the practical section. Now we said in turn that each section divides into three sections. So we're in the doctrinal section, chapters 1 through 8. And after the introduction, he highlights three major doctrines. The doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of sanctification. So when you come to verses 19 and 20, it's a hinge verse. He's leading us from the doctrine of condemnation, that is that we are guilty before God, to the doctrine of justification, how we can be declared not guilty and righteous before God. So this morning, if you're taking notes, there are three simple truths that I want you to walk away with. Roman number one there on your outline, God's righteousness is revealed through the law. God's righteousness is revealed through the law. Now we've spent again eight weeks looking at the fact that every race and rank, every creed and culture, Jew and Gentile, immoral, immoral, religious and non-religious are guilty. All people, without exception, have sinned before God. And left to themselves, there is no ray of hope. In Paul's words to the Ephesians, by nature we are all children of wrath. And so, having just quoted the law, remember that last week, verses 10 to 18, as he strung together a number of Old Testament passages from the law, he then says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law. Now, Jewish people could easily be tempted to read verses 10 to 18 and say, yes, indeed, those quotations apply to those pagan Gentiles. But Paul says, now we know whatever the law says, here referring to the Old Testament in general, Sometimes the word law refers just to the Torah or sometimes to the whole of the Old Testament. We know that whatever the Old Testament says, it speaks to those who are under the law. 
Or more literally in one translation, those who are within the law, meaning Jews as well. He's speaking not just of Gentiles, but he's speaking of Jews. And why does he quote this Old Testament law in verses 10 to 18? So that every mouth may be closed. One of the purposes of the law was to shut our mouths. So that every mouth may be closed and that all the world may become accountable to God. And so the picture here is of a defendant given the opportunity to justify himself before God Almighty. But when he stands in God's presence, his mouth is shut. Not a peep comes from him because he knows he is guilty. Like Isaiah of old who gets a glimpse of God there in the trisigion. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of an unclean people. In the presence of God Almighty, no unbeliever will even attempt to defend himself. Every mouth will be stopped. God is saying that every ego-filled, self-righteous son of Adam, you basically need to bow your heads, close your eyes, and plead guilty because that is what we are. Every mouth will be stopped. That's one of the messages of the Old Testament. That we are sinners, that we are guilty, inexcusably guilty, and we have no defense before God. And why are we guilty? He gives us the answer in verse 20. It begins because, and that's the best rendering of the Greek, because by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified in his sight. Now, all of us have known God's law. Some of you grew up with the written law. We call it the Bible. Some people listening to me today have never heard the Bible preached. They've never read the Bible, but they, as we saw in Romans 2.15, have the law of God written in their hearts. So all men, in some way, sense, or form, has known God's law, and they have disobeyed it. And so someone would immediately object. Well, Paul, if the law can't save us, then what is the purpose of God's law? Well, among others, he says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was never given to save us, but to reveal us. It was given to show us what sinners we were. It was never given to redeem us. It was given to reveal us. Right out in the margin, or if you have a Bible with cross-references, circle Romans 7, 7. And fast forward, go a couple pages to the right, to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. I want you to notice what Paul says there, giving further explanation of this phrase, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He asks, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? If you can't be saved by the law, which is the context of the question, is the law sin? Meganoita. May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. You see, the fact that God's law was given in written form and written on human hearts, it reveals that we're sinful. So if a man went out and coveted something that he should not covet, if a man uh, committed adultery, if he stole something, then the law of God either impregnated in his conscience or written on tablets of stone would convict him. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin, and it would show him that he was guilty. Paul said it this way to the church at Galatia. 
Therefore, he says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. I love the way the King James renders it. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us onto Christ that we may be justified by faith. The law is a teacher. It is a schoolmaster. Luther said the function of the law is not to justify, but to terrify and to drive us to Christ. The law is like a mirror. When you look into a mirror, you see your face is dirty. When you look into God's law, you see that your soul is dirty. The one reveals the outside, the other reveals the inside. Now, you don't take a mirror and smear it on your face to make your face clean. It will only make things worse. Neither do you take the law in thinking that by obeying it, you can become righteous because you cannot. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Are you with me? I want you to be able to explain every single word in this section of Scripture. I want you to memorize the last half of Romans 3. All right? So he's saying, in essence, God says, be quiet. You're guilty. You're condemned. You need to be rescued. And so God's righteousness is revealed through the law. Secondly, I want you to see how God's righteousness originates apart from the law. Not only is his righteousness revealed through the law, because it shows us in stark contrast to him, God's righteousness is apart from the law. And so having left us very desperate and depressed, he moves from the bad news to the good news with these words, but now. In essence, Paul is saying, since I've established that everyone needs to hear and appropriate the gospel, let me explain it in great detail. The Bible is crystal clear that if you are going to go to heaven, you need the righteousness of God. You must be as holy and as righteous as God himself. And so Paul is going to explain and expound precisely what the righteousness of God is. And first, he reminds us that it cannot be obtained by human effort. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness that we need, Paul says... Is apart from the law. It's apart from your keeping the Ten Commandments. It is apart from your uh, following the golden rule. It is apart from any effort or anything that you can do. You cannot dig deep into your pockets and pull out righteousness and say, Oh yes, God, I am okay. Now that's what the average man on the street thinks. He thinks that somehow if in the end the good outweighs the bad, that he will be acceptable and righteous in God's sight. But Paul wants to make it very clear that if you are going to go to heaven, you need the righteousness of God. And it's a different kind of righteousness than anything that you can obtain or earn through your own human efforts. Now let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's see an illustration of this truth from the Bible itself. Hold your finger here, would you, and turn to the right to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3. Four little books, they're easy to get mixed up or confused in the order, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. I always remembered it, go everywhere preaching Christ. Or some said the great electric power company or a guy in my Bible study 
35 years ago who brought the popcorn every week. His name was Gary. He said, Gary eats popcorn. That's how he remembered it. Well, however you can remember it, learn it. In Philippians 3, Paul is dealing with a group of men known as Judaizers. Judaizers were Jewish men who taught and thought that man somehow, through self-effort, could help save himself. And so if you look in chapter 3, in verse 1, notice what he writes. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard to you. And that's true with all repetition in Bible teaching. When I repeat myself, I do it because Christ modeled it, the epistles command it, and it's to your benefit, to my benefit, because it puts the truth that much deeper in your heart, and it safeguards you from error. Then in verse 2, he gives a strong word of warning. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. He's addressing Jews primarily in mind here because they were the dominant religion that were in opposition to Paul's teaching into his public ministry. Most Jews believe that they, being Jewish, as the people of God, somehow had a favored status before God and a guaranteed place in heaven. In the proof that they were the people of God and they had this guaranteed status was a little mark in their body known as circumcision. Now we've already studied at the end of Romans 2 how Paul blasts that concept out of the water. We saw in our theology of circumcision that it was an external mark on the body revealing the need for a deep and total cleansing and forgiveness of sin. But in Paul's day, amongst the Jews, it had just become a tribal tattoo. And so he says here, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, beware of the dogs. We've all seen that sign because dogs can bark and they can bite. Well, Paul is describing these Judaizers who taught that circumcision was part of God's package in saving you. He describes them as dogs. He turns the phrase upside down because typically by the Jews, the term dog was a reference to the Gentiles. Jesus even uses it that way. But here Paul is saying that it's not the Gentiles who are the dogs. In this case, it's these Jewish false teachers who are the dogs. He's saying you watch out for those dogs because they can be mean and they can hurt Listen, everyone in religion is not kind. Some of the most meanest people in this world are religious people. Beware of the dog. The Bible tells us that if we could earn our salvation, that there would be no need for a savior. And of course, the ability for man to save himself is utterly ludicrous. We've just cracked the book on our look at the righteousness of God. And if you'd like to listen again to this message in its entirety, Call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM12. You can also visit us online at searchthescriptures.org or download the Search the Scriptures app for iOS and Android devices and listen to this or any of the messages in this series from Romans at your leisure. At Search the Scriptures, we are committed to sharing the love and knowledge of Jesus Christ with a world that's in desperate need. Won't you consider helping in this mission? Just call 
1-800-227-7478 and inquire about making a one-time gift or about becoming a foundation partner. Tomorrow we'll continue our look at the righteousness of God. Join us then as we search the scriptures.